The Power of Agile, hosted by Nagara. Welcome to The Power of Agile, the show that delves into the world of agile coaching, leadership, and organizational excellence. I'm your host, Gurpreet Badesh, and today we're embarking on an insightful journey exploring the highs and lows of agile coaching, a journey we like to call Riding the Agile Roller Coaster. In every organization's pursuit of excellence, there's a crucial player, and that is the Agile coach. They navigate through challenges, catalyze change, and bring teams together to achieve a common goal. Today, we have Daniel Edder with us, a seasoned Agile coach who will be sharing real-world lessons and experiences gained on this roller coaster. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Capret. It's great to be here. Um, and it's great to discuss today the intricacies of agile coaching, um, which is my profession and that involves quite a lot more than just the methodologies. Um, it's more about understanding the people, fostering collaboration um, and eventually steering an organization to excellence. Absolutely. And we titled today's episode Riding the Agile Roller Coaster: Navigating Ups and Downs for Organizational Excellence. So buckle up, dear listeners. We're about to unravel the roller coaster of challenges and victories and gain insights that can truly transform the approach to agile coaching. Well, indeed, it is a roller coaster ride. Uh, and today I'm here to talk about some real world experiences, some lessons that I personally learned and uh, hopefully also bring some strategies for agile coaches out there um, to thrive in this dynamic and changing landscape. Um, so everybody stay tuned for a journey filled with some twists, some turns and hopefully some valuable takeaways. Fantastic. And before we dive into our discussion, Daniel, our listeners are always curious to get to know a little bit more about our guests. So can you share a hobby or interest that you're passionate about outside of the Agile world? Of course I can. Um, so outside of the Agile community, um, there are three things uh, that keep me up and about. First one, the maybe most um, strange one in there. I'm involved in the historical European martial arts community. Um, which deals with, you know, the typical longsword fencing and going to tournaments and training um, the typical past combat techniques of Europe. Mm -hmm. The other one is my family and my dog. I have three boys now, um, aging from nine to one year. Uh, so they keep me quite busy. <laughs> and a dog who's a quarter husky breed. So um, we're up and about in the countryside and roaming around where we live. That's quite busy. And the third one is I have a soft development background. I still do some side projects that keep me up longer than they should, according to my wife. Wow. It sounds like you've got a lot on there and you lead a very active lifestyle. That's that's wonderful. And, and um, could you share a bit more about your background now and what led you into the world of agile coaching specifically? Yes, of course. Um, my journey itself has been quite a bit of a roller coaster. Um, so some details about that. I said I have a strong background in software development. This is where I actually started out. I started out as a software developer uh, involved in banking and finance um, and then strongly in developing custom off-the-shelf products uh, with exotic languages such as COBOL, uh, which in itself is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, uh, I figured out it can't just be writing good code and um, 
development problem itself, but it's more about the people that make up the whole system of delivery. So I became one of the first Scrum Masters in my back then company. Right. Um, and, you know, picked up more and more responsibilities. So I did a typical engineering career. You go to architect, you go to team lead, uh, but also on the edge side, I was a Scrum Master. I helped organizations improve that. Uh, which eventually, around 2017, led me to join a company back then called Anacon, mm-hmm. now called Nagaro, as we're part of that uh, big global family. Um, and also here in, I eventually, this is where I'm now, I picked up the role of what we call the global practice lead for agile quality consulting, where I lead a team of agile coaches and consultants internationally, and we help clients improve their, you know, the way they deliver software from actual practices, introducing Scrum to Kanban, to how do you do emerging architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been some ups and downs, quite a lot of experiences, uh, and I'm still eager to spread the word about improving the way we do our work. Definitely, and quite a journey you've had. So you started in software development, now agile coaching. Oh yeah. It's it's really going to give us that holistic picture yes. today. It's from code to people. Yeah. I'm now curious, what would you say some of the the challenges are, or like difficulties even, that agile coaches face in their role that, I mean, aren't aren't discussed openly? Yeah, of course. Um, I think the the role of an agile coach is quite interesting because it's pretty new to the industry if you compare it to, let's say, a software developer. They've been around for more than three decades, Mm -hmm. even, even 40 to 50 years, you could say. Um, if you're taking a look at the actual coach role, it, it's quite new. It's about maybe a bit more than 10 years old. Okay. Um, so there are a lot of mixed expectations that you get. Um, that's one of the challenges that, you know, rarely anybody mentions because it seems like there is this, there's this one picture that you have of an actual coach. Right. But reality is if you enter a scenario, if you, en- if you get to any company and you just go there and ask the actual coaches, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. If you can ask the, the management team there, what are they doing? I mean, the actual coaches, then you will get wildly different results. So one of the challenges is you have to be pretty adaptive. Of course. You have to, you know, take on the right hat for the, for the right situation. Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then the second one, what many people I think underestimate is that it is very much a people driven job very much a job rooted in psychological aspects. So um, that leads to some of my colleagues and even I experiencing lots of mental stress that you get because very often you're in a situation where you try to change something, you try to improve something, and you have to deal with all the people aspects of it. Yes. And and people, you know, very often they, they, they put trust in you, they entrust you with their ideas, their thoughts, and you kind of have to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you kind of have to have all of that in your head, and you have to to opt for a bit of uh, psycho hygiene. It's like a balancing act, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Let's say it's more about balancing that you have to do. Um, so there's a second one that comes to mind, and and the third thing that comes to mind is it always depends on what's your what's your actual job. As I said, it's very a huge variety of um, tasks that are put up on the shoulders of a national coach. Um, but one thing is always you have to make trade-off decisions. Usually you go in there, you have to, um, you know, take the trade-off between 
what's the global goal? Why are you there? And then there are so many individuals and people you're working with. What are their desires? What are their goals? How can you unify that? How can you now align those different ideas? Um, and of course, it also has the question of something. It's about figuring out what's the right thing to do at the moment or mm -hmm. the right actual thing to do at the moment. And then the question is what is asked of you? If you're asked to do huge changes, yeah. um, how, how much do you favor that? How, how can you turn that around? And it's, it's kind of, I think it's a job where you have to do a lot of thinking with a lot of um, unifying ideas in your head. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it's kind of like starting with the end in mind, right? So you mentioned having yeah. the holistic yes. viewpoint, yes, and then you've got the individual expectations, yes. and obviously they have their own goals that they want to achieve, and it's like how does that fit into the bigger picture? And I guess somehow framing it in a way where it works and it oh, yeah, turns into a win-win situation. Yes, very much. You and and you mentioned it. It's a lot about framing. Mm -hmm. It's something that. Interestingly, if you take a look at the big conferences, uh, not many people talk about how you frame different ideas, how you reframe them for yourself, um, and, and how you can you know, kind of become at peace with what is necessary to do at the moment, mm -hmm. what would be the right actual thing to do, and, and what do people actually want in an organization. Yeah. Um, That's that, a very that... interesting perspective you've got there. So with that in mind, can you share some examples of, of situations where you've encountered resistance whilst you're coaching teams or individuals? Yeah, of course, of course I can. Uh, <laughs> I can share many, but I try to, um, you know, I try to pick interesting ones. Um, so a couple of years ago, I was working with a, back then, not so big organization now, we've grown rapidly. Um, and when I, when I entered in there, well, the management team asked me with this prompt of, we want to use Nexus as an actual scaling method. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the challenges regarding resistance was actually with the management team, because I got in there, I figured out what's happening, what's a good layout that could help them. Um, they were desperately looking for a way to deal with their high dependencies and trying to scale that up. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to deal with the expectation of the management team that they were already settled on which kind of scaling from what they want to use. And I figured out it's not going to work. It's just not matching the company. It's not just um, matching the natural you know, ideas of people. Um, and just trying to deal with that. And con it's not about convincing, but it's about getting them to understand why a different approach is useful. That's kind of also how I dealt with it. Mm -hmm. I figured out, well, Nexus is not going to work with for you. Um, but less could, okay. so large as Scrum. Um, and the way I tried to navigate that is there was a huge movement within the company where they wanted to try that. That's the one thing. And the other thing was um, I just got the responsible people into the conversation. I just showed them, you know, well, yes, there's Nexus. This is what it does. There are other scaling frameworks that you have as well. Um, so let's talk about what you can expect from them, what you would like to gain. And in the end, I... I asked them to take, I don't know, five steps back mm -hmm. and think of why do you want the change? Why do you want to introduce that and what do you hope to gain? And then we ended up in a much better conversation. Yeah. We weren't talking about which framework to use, but we talked about what we want to achieve. And then while well, we settled on using large scale Scrum because they also understood like, okay, we want to deal with all these dependencies, um, but we also want to find something that comes naturally to our product landscape yeah. layout. Yeah. 
and that that just matched, right? Of course, and and you have to involve them in the process, right? Because yes. that's where you get the buy-in yes. and. Shaping it together is a lot better yes, in general. Yes. And, and I may also have an, another example that's quite recent to me because it's with a much smaller company. It's just, a, I don't know, 30 people, startup-like company that I'm working with just for the last couple of months. Um, and they, they actually brought me in with this idea of um, we, we need to do something. We're growing. We want to scale up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that the way we do things, it's kind of agile. Um, but it's not really anything planned. It's just how it has been growing from a five-person startup to a 30-people startup. Just going with it almost. Yes, and, mm-hmm. you, just, and you just see where the boundaries um, of all of that are. Um, and the expectation of the, of the employees of that company, they're very high because they actually ask for somebody from the outside to come in and help them. Also, the expectation of the owners of that company. So the C-level, of course, is very, very tough because they have to meet timelines. They have mm-hmm. to, you know, look at how they're funding, how they're getting their money. All of that has to keep running. Um, the way I deal with that situation is trying something called um, open space agility, which is an approach where, like, yes, with a management team, I'm going to figure out what's the direction we want to take. Okay. Where do we want to go? Uh, what's the overall goal? And then we will get everybody in a big room. Um, so every of the 30 employees of the company and uh, run kind of an open space event where there will be predefined slots where they can talk about stuff, but they can bring their own ideas. So it's also about involving people, but on a much larger scale. So not just, you know, three management guys, but mm-hmm. this is about bringing really in the whole team Different of the company. Different stakeholders, yeah. Yes, and, and coming up with their with their own ideas. Yes, it's clear where they want to go. Well, there will be a set direction, there will be a set goal to achieve, but they will be asked to bring in suggestions on how we can reach that. And they know the company better as yes, well. Yes, so of can, course. Yeah. I mean, let, let's be honest. That's the thing that you have as a natural coach or, or as any consultant. You come in from the outside. You have a couple of weeks to get to know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will never know the day-to-day details and intricacies just as if people know who are there. Yeah. So just bringing them in, asking them for their ideas. On the one hand, it brings in the knowledge that you don't have. And on the other hand, it also gives them a stake. So it's not... So change becomes not something that is done to them or inflicted on them. It's done by them. Yes. Yeah. It happens through them. It happens with them. Mm-hmm. So they are at the center. Um, and that's maybe that's kind of the, 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 the dirty secret that's in there. Yeah. Uh, if you want to change something, uh, don't inflict it on them, but let the people change something. Just catalyze that interesting that idea. And this this open space uh, agile approach that you mentioned, is this something that you do... Uh, with every client or is it no yeah no okay. it's not it's um it's a it's an approach that takes people willing to dive into that idea of mm-hmm. um handing control to the employees or to the affected people so the idea behind the open space agility is you involve the people affected you let them come up with ideas um so that requires a, a leadership team that is willing mm-hmm. not only willing to listen to people but willing to share control and power with them. Okay. Um, and then, of course, you need you need to have that momentum in an organization. Yes. That the people are that are they are willing, they feel an urge to change something. Then it's something you can bring in, and then it can it can be quite powerful. I think if they have the urge as well, they're ready for that change. Yes, they yeah. they need to want it. Otherwise, um, it, you can't force somebody to change. 
It won't last can. long. No, it won't. It won't. Absolutely. Yeah. So now let's uh, shift the focus to clients. What would you say are the uh, unrealistic expectations that clients have about agile coaches? Yes. Uh, I, I think I mentioned it somewhere in the opening as well. Mm. Um, so the, the idea why you're bringing agile coaches is very different. Okay. So um, one thing I encounter repeatedly is that people are like, or like a management team in a, in a more traditional company maybe is thinking of my teams are not performing. So I bring in an agile coach, they will do their metric. And after two to three months, we will have performing productive teams. Um, well, that's not how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So a natural coach doesn't just come in and does something and, and your people get more motivated or get more productive. Well, yes, we can facilitate processes. We can we can even act as uh, replacement scrum masters. Um, but there is no magic sauce in there. There is no, you know, <laughs> the secret ingredient that we can whip out to make people become twice as productive. And, and there was an infamous book that kind of coined this idea mm-hmm. where people now think, Oh, I can do twice the you know twice the work in half the time. It was actually a book title of one of the first uh, Scrum books that you could find, okay. which was kind of giving that promise. Um, and people still believe that um, to the day. So they believe in actually that will make the company faster, and more importantly, they believe that it will happen without asking them. Them is the management team to change anything. Oh right. And that's not how it's going to work. Um, that's a really unrealistic expectation. Well, it, it it's out there and. To be honest, to a certain degree, we can improve productivity, mm-hmm. but not without changing stuff. Yeah. Um, which also leads to this idea that others may have that a natural coach is just a replacement manager, just a team lead that I can put in there. Mm-hmm. Um, while the role is quite varied, and yes, sometimes um, it's more authoritative or uh, more of a management-ish role, a natural coach or even a natural consultant, regardless of you know, the specific role, um, they're not team leads you will bring in. They're not interim managers. Um, they care for the system that's at work. They care for the processes for the people and to try to improve something. Uh, well, if you're looking for some, for a replacement manager, well, hire a team lead. That's, <laughs> that's kind of that idea. And then on the other hand, or on the other side of the extremes, uh, we have the expectation of I bring in an actual coach and they're just process facilitators. Mm-hmm. So I, I run Scrum in the company, I bring in an Agile coach, they will be the Scrum master and they just will pop up in every daily Scrum. Uh, they will just run the retrospectives, they will just, you know, work through the process and ensure that the process is kept as intended. So no room for change. Yes, kind of kind of this, you, you bring them in and they're just like the project manager working in a framework and um, with no idea of changing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also not going to happen. I think... Good agile coaches have that urge to change. Um, they they want to influence their environment. They want to influence the people they work with. Um, and if you bring them in a situation where they're just running the process, yeah, uh, they will get frustrated pretty quickly. Yeah, I can I can see that happening. Yeah. I mean, who, who wouldn't? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, how do you navigate these challenges then? Yeah, um, one of the most important things is you have to do good expectation management. Mm-hmm. Say so if you take a gig as an agile coach, you have to make sure how you're working, what people can expect from you. And you may even have to set some boundaries. Like there's stuff that I will do that's in scope, there's stuff that I won't do, that's kind of my out of scope work. 
Um, that's the one part. The other part is, is you have to craft this alliance with whoever brings you in. Right. And, and it doesn't matter if it's if it's an external electric coach or if you're an internal electric coach, so just an employer of the company, you still have to make sure that it's clear what you do, what people can expect from you, uh, and to craft what your role is. You set, you set the expectations. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. You set the expectations, you set the boundaries, um, and, and it may happen you figure out it's not going to work for me. Right. And then that's what you have to communicate. You have to, to work that out with your sponsor in the organization. Okay. They need to know what you can get from you. You also need to tell them what you expect from them. Yeah. So it's a two-way yes. process there. And how would you say you handle situations where there is a lack of support or understanding from the the upper management within a yeah. company? Um, well, as I said before, one part is finding an alliance with the upper part of the management. So let's be clear on one thing. If you want to do a, a great job as a national coach, you're an agent for change. And that requires a leadership buy-in. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't just go in there and start messing with the with the system uh, without having that agreement that it's okay. Right. So if you don't get the support, uh, first off, try to ask for it. It's it's very simple. If you are in a situation where you have that feeling on I I can't get what I need from a leadership team or even just from a team lead, well then be just just spell it out. Have spell a direct conversation. Have a direct conversation and tell them what you need. Uh, ask whether it's in their interest. Mm-hmm. That kind of leads maybe to the second part. Um, be clear on what your purpose is. Why have you been brought in? Yes. Um, do you want to touch some parts of the organization that are, even by some unspoken rule, mm-hmm. out of your limits? Uh, let's stay away from that. Yeah. On the other hand, if you, if you need to touch it, because... You know, you need to get that thing going so you can do the other thing, um, then ask for it. Very often, I find that a lack of support from a leadership team comes from not being clear on what you need to do, why you need it, um, and, and what benefit it will bring. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that. I think this is this is a, a common a very common thing across different yeah. uh, consulting roles in yeah, general. But, you know, very often you go in there, you're like, I want to do this big, cool change. I will make everything better. Then you try to start something and then you figure out you're hitting limitations. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I also, I had to learn that's a sign that I was not acting in agreement okay. or that I wasn't just getting the, I wasn't asking for the buy-in. Right. Right. And, and well, of course, then there are these situations where you try all of that I try to really forge an alliance with them where you were in a good person relation mm-hmm. with those people, which is also maybe a thing you should work for. Just <laughs> yeah. go for lunch with the management team. Um, or, or you can't reach them. Then, well, the, the, the biggest thing you have to do is decide to not do it, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. If, if you figure out you're not getting that buy-in, it may be something that's off-limits to you. Um, and very often, it may just not be worth it for them to invest in that part of, of a change. Right. So let, let's say you want to speed up a development team and you figure out, in order to do that, I need to work with the product management who are creating the requirements because they have to change something. Mm-hmm. And then you may figure out, well, I tried to get the buy-in, I talked to the according managers, I talked to the leadership team, and, and I'm not getting ahead because I'm not getting their buy-in. 
and then it may just be off limits and you may have to find a different way or you may have to figure, point out to them well if i can't do it i can bring improvement yeah yeah so but you see i'm i'm, I'm somebody who likes to to bring the tough conversation to people okay um <laughs> so you're not afraid to have those tough no and, and, and that's important you yeah. need to have them mm -hmm. you need to have them with everybody and especially with leadership teams which does not mean be unfriendly but be open be transparent and you know just be realistic yeah and it's in their best interest right so yes it's like often. you're trying to help them at the end of yes the day. i mean i mean usually they bring you in yeah <laughs> that, so they want something from you um so they will usually if you can explain why somebody's necessary or something is necessary why you want to change it if they understand that and if you buy into the idea then all the doors open usually mm -hmm. interesting point you make there daniel so are there any ethical dilemmas uh, that agile coaches might face with teams or individuals yeah let's be honest they are constantly there <laughs> so I, as i mentioned um you're very often you're brought in there for the reason mm -hmm. regardless if you're internal coach or external coach there's a reason why people put a trust in you that you can improve something um and that that goal may be at odds with with many things so first off it may prompt you to bring in some change that may be required to achieve the goal mm -hmm. um, but that may cause or that may let's call it inflict harm in quotes um to people working there so you have to straight off between um what do I need to do to reach a certain goal? When you when you say harm, well, yes, I mean like. Give me an example. Yes, I I, I, give, I give an example. Maybe you're you brought in there because you should speed up the time to value of an organization. Okay. So decrease the idea from uh, the time from idea to uh, to delivered in production. Mm -hmm. That may require to to streamline stuff. Right. So and you may encounter an organization where everybody's pretty settled and you know. They have their routine. Yes, they, they know have exactly their routine. So you may be, you may see that it is necessary to to shake up that routine, mm -hmm. um, to maybe introduce some process or maybe even some transparency that people don't like, um, and that's an ethic. The first ethical dilemma you have, you have, you know, this. I know what is need to be done, but it may. It, it's not about just being inconvenient to people, uh, but it may even ask them to review why do I work here. Wow. Uh, so you and, and I encountered it quite a lot of times in my work. Even small changes um, are hard to foresee which conclusions people will draw from them. Do you think? I'm curious here, right? Yeah. I mean, when you're when you're trying to like make this change, especially yeah. at the individual level, is it ever worthwhile just sitting down with them and explaining how this? Of course. Yeah. That's that's the important part. Okay. You have to you have to bring the question: Why do we change that? What do we want to achieve? What are your thoughts on them? You need to bring that to them. Mm -hmm. But even then, you may know, well, um, people may not like it. It will, it will not only shake up their routines, but I will have to ask people to completely redefine the way they do their day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is stress for people. That stresses people out. So just imagine if you if somebody comes in and tells you, no, from now on, you have to do your whole job completely differently. Yes. That puts mental stress on people um, and, and you have to, to figure out how much can I, how much of this stress can I inflict to them mm -hmm. um, and when it's just worth it, you know, when, when do you need to draw, the line. To, to, to draw the line and decide, well, that's, that goal is worth it 
And this actually bringing, right, trying to achieve that goal, like streamlining something that may cause harm to people. Yes. So you have to navigate it very, 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 very carefully. Um, and that, of course, this is a general thing. You always have to be aware of, are you burning people out? Usually, as an agile coach, you're very driven to bring yeah. change, to improve, to improve, to improve. And that may not flow very well with everyone. So you have to be very careful to understand, um, can we handle the change right now? Um, is it is it worthwhile to ask for improving that again and improve it again and improve it again? Is it worth doing that? Or am I just stressing people out? So, so very, very many of the dilemmas, of the ethical dilemmas, come down to what's the impact that I have on an organizational level mm -hmm. uh, versus what's the impact that this has on the individual level. Yeah, I, I mean, I must say, I didn't even think of that, but that is such an interesting topic that you mentioned. I mean, the the burnout topic, it's yeah. huge. And this was such a thing during COVID. So yes. how did you how did you kind of navigate through that? Um, yeah, it has, this has to do with how do you manage your own expectations? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, especially when coming from an outside view, um, you may be prone to like, okay, we can, we can change everything at once. Um, but you have to, you have to throttle your own speed a bit. Yeah. Um, because also it's not going to end well <laughs> for you as an actual coach, but it's about, um, just think of what do I want to achieve and what's the smallest step, the step that causes the least stress for everyone mm -hmm. that we can take. Just take it slower. So just incremental steps rather than. Yes, uh... that's. Yes, it's about slow incremental steps. Even a baby step forward is a step forward. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it also has to do with setting expectations again. Mm -hmm. um, but this is usually my, my key factor is I know I have all the things I want to do, I want to achieve. I have all these ideas. First off, I need to discuss with people how it will affect them. And then we will have to set a slower pace for everybody to, to keep up. Yes. With, especially during COVID, that was a thing where, where everybody was just from one day to the other interested in... Um, adapting to organization, mm -hmm. but you can't, you know. And it was even more difficult with everyone being yes, based from it was, it was a huge shift of working behavior. Mm -hmm. We had to relearn a lot of stuff. Um, and in that situation, uh, you can't, you cannot at the same time no. change everything. You've already got new technologies that yes. you're using. Yes. There's, it's a, it's a yes. new playground in itself. Yes, it is. Yeah. So whilst we're on the topic of burnouts, are there any self-care strategies or practices that agile coaches uh, tend to use to prevent burnout or, or manage the demands of the role? Yeah, let's say should use because over the past years, I've experienced many colleagues, very, very senior colleagues mm -hmm. in, uh, in that industry um, to be on the edge of burnout or really burning out themselves and then having to take breaks. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you know recover from that um, so that's that's an important advice from my side for everyone working in that role is monitor your energy levels understand what drains your energy understand what gives you back energy as you asked yes. in the beginning what, what yeah. energizes you what re helps you recharge um, and it has to be in balance it's like you know you, you have you want to fill a sink and you turn on the um, you turn on the water stream. Yeah. It goes in there and, and you have to be careful that 
it's at the right you know at the right amount the water that goes in has to match the water that goes out at least yes um so you have to be careful for that and, and that's also the, the mental image you need to have you know my energy level i need an inflow and then there's this drainage mm -hmm. and i have to keep that in balance that's the one thing um and if you uncover that there's something at all it's unbalanced uh, then take a break yeah. try in, implement breaks to your work routine uh, if you're running three retrospectives in a day mm -hmm. that may wear you down okay. so make sure that you have enough time to prepare make sure that you have enough time to wind down afterwards um, if you if you end up in in high intensity situations uh, you know you're running that one team kickoff make sure that you have time to recover from that it's like prioritizing the important things yes. mm -hmm. it, and, and also just with every role out there in our work life, figure out how much you can put on your plate. Mm -hmm. Don't be a people pleaser and, and just, you know, if somebody, can you onboard that team? Yes. Can you onboard the next team? Yes. Can you also work with the management team? Yes. I mean, at one point you will have to draw a line. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what you can do on a personal level. And then what I advise every agile coach, every company working with agile coaches and employing them is opt for peer groups okay so there's one approach if you if you take a look into into psychotherapy okay i'm, I'm not equating actual coaching with psychotherapy here <laughs> just from the mode of working wise okay um they have mandated supervision and they have uh, mandated peer groups where those people get together to talk about what's happening at my desk not revealing client details but just how does it affect me um also making sure that through such peer groups or body systems that there is somebody you can discuss the tough stuff with mm -hmm. where you can um, well just have a, a, somebody who can help you ref reflect on how you're doing who can do that psycho balancing you mentioned yeah I mean now that you mention it I mean sometimes speaking out loud is the best thing yes. right and quite often we tend to uh, bottle things up Yes. not talk about them and it's like yeah. you kind of sweep it under the carpet type yeah. of mentality right um so it's really interesting that you mentioned that because i think when you when you start to speak out loud you get a different perspective but also you you either realize that things aren't as bad as they seem yeah, true. or you realize what are the most important things yes true and, and maybe sometimes it's just enough to get a coffee break with a colleague to just yeah. recap some things they don't even have to solve anything mm -hmm. it's just about sitting down and um, just talking about it and then you have a clear mind again um, and that has to become a habit for actual coaches yeah and it's it's a way to recharge as well so in your role as an agile coach you obviously work with individuals as well and they are from different backgrounds so can you discuss uh, or, or give me any examples where you've had to adapt or adjust your coaching approach mm. to accommodate for any cultural differences or any uh, organization specific yeah. dynamics yeah um i think that's that's one of the key parts of being an actual coach is being adaptable yeah um, obviously <laughs> um and and lisa atkins framed this idea of the um, actual coaching competency framework so that's one way of, of adapting which shows the different stances you have to take from being a coach being a mentor, being a facilitator, and the next moment you're a trainer um, or you're, you're just a process expert. Sounds that, like a lot of hats to wear. That's quite a lot of hats to wear. Yeah. I think it's nine or ten hats that you have to wear <laughs> and, and switch out at any given time. 
And so there's the one level, there's the, there's the task level of being adaptable. Um, but then there's the level of fitting yourself into an organization. And I don't mean it in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting theory um, called Spire Dynamics, for anybody who wants to look at it, that emphasizes the idea that organizations run through different stages in their development, mm-hmm. that you have different sets of values and different given times. Um, whenever you start working with a company, you have to figure out what's their context, what is their level of, of progression. Um, is, it, is it a company that's driven by um, values foremost? Mm-hmm. So by, by what, you know, by their core values that, I don't know, um, maybe they want to be the best on, on the market and it's important to them is that value of always improving and learning. Um, maybe they want to be reliable and they have more conservative values. Um, then, then you have to match not your personality, but your way of acting with them. Yeah. You have to be able to connect with them. Maybe you even end up in a company that's much more um, aggressive, mm-hmm. where it's much more, uh, I don't know, one department against the other. I mean, that's not something I advise to all adopt that mindset, um, but you have to be able to, to work with that. You have to be able to understand what drives people in the organization and get to a level where you can figure out the next step for them on their revolution. So that requires you to kind of adopt your own your own way of behaving and your own mindset to how to how any organization works. Yeah. So what what you're saying, uh, or at least what I'm hearing, is that you're putting yourself in their shoes. Yes. Yeah. It, it, yes, it is. It's very important to understand it and then take on their shoes, walk a couple of miles in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not be stuck there, <laughs> you know, keep them getting ahead. And that's what we're just talking about, how different organizations operate. Mm-hmm. And if you bring, you mentioned bringing even cultures to the mix. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a U.S. company or, or people from, from the U.S. operate totally different uh, than their counterparts from, I don't know, Argentina, Brasilia. Yes. Um, if, you, if we go to the East, I mean, being European, being a bit Eurocentric here, sorry for that. You get to the East, um, Asian cultures operate completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we know that Nagara, we have a huge workforce. It's uh, very diverse. In, in yeah. India, it's very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, connecting with them, but also in Europe, just connecting with people from the Nordics, for example. And the communication style is very different. Yes. Mm. So you have to be aware of that. And, and just to point it out, the job of a natural coach is very, very driven by communication and by people. So you have to be able to match with them. Uh, connect with people so you have to you have to learn kind of to adapt to different communication style of cultures of organizations and, and even individuals meanwhile still being true to yourself yeah and i think it's not as clear-cut as individualistic versus collectivist no, cultures no absolutely not absolutely there, not there's a lot more to it yes even, even i mean cultures are just generalizations mm-hmm. even if we're i don't know if you take any culture you may find subgroups and subcultures in them yes you can i, I just like to point out you can see that in organizations when you say like the finance department is it was a different culture than the sales department mm-hmm. who are again on a total different style than the development team yeah and, and it's just a microcosm that you have to navigate and you also can navigate on a huge scale, on a large scale, kind of. Yeah, that's that's a lot of complexity there. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, Daniel, 
we've spoken a lot around the challenges and and how you kind of work around that. But now can you tell me, are there any trade secrets that agile coaches use in their work to achieve better outcomes? Yeah, (laughs) of course. I mean, I hinted to some of them. Let's be open, being an actual coach has to do a lot with human behavior. Mm-hmm. There's a whole field of science dealing with how humans behave and why they do that. It's called psychology. Um, and one of the trade secrets is that any good or great actual coach um, has not only not really taken a training, but uh, has invested the time to understand and research uh, the human psychology that's mm-hmm. behind everything. So that's one of the trade secrets. If you want to be great as an actual coach, trying to learn about human psychology. You don't have to get a university degree. Right. <laughs> but at least um, read it up, discuss with people, uh, learn about the science behind it. It can really, really advance the way you operate. Just human psychology, right? Just human psychology. Okay. So no studies or anything, just the theory-based? Yes, the, the yeah. theory, um, or, or just educate yourself on the topic. Okay. It, it will help you to understand how people work. If you look into organizational psychology, it can help you explain how how and why organizations behave the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good foundation. And then there are many, many, I, I don't like to call it tricks, but many methods from psychology that you can translate mm-hmm. to your work. At least it helped me very much. That's the, that's the one dirty secret right. tool of trade that I see. Um, and the other one that's quite a, I don't know, um, heated discussion in the community, um, is learn what your people are doing. And then when you actually coaches, if you're working with a software development team, learn how software development works. If you're working with a marketing team, learn the ropes of how marketing works. You need to be able to understand what a team does in order to work with them. And lead them, yeah. It's the only yeah. way that you will get their buy-in as well. Yes, it is. Um, and then the lamest of all the Great secrets is practice. Um, you can't you, you can't have the expectation that you you just landed your first Scrum Master job and after six months uh, you can change organizations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see that happen very often. People get their first three months of oh, I've been a Scrum Master now I can now I can bring change to any organization. Um, and it's not going to happen like that. You have to practice your tools. Uh, you have to, to learn that you can even do that in, in in kind of artificial setups. Just take the team, try out different methods figure out what works for you, find your style, mm-hmm. and then become proficient in it. Yes, and it's learning is an ongoing process. Yes, well. and, and especially for us. So as actual coaches, we have to be generalist to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. So while yes, there may be an emphasis on team development, there may be an emphasis on, I don't know, running Scrum with teams, there may be an emphasis on developing organizations, but you also need to understand basically everything else of the organization in order to to do a good job. Yeah. Just kind of look look for that breath. Yes, you're specialized. Um, you may know that we ask uh, development teams to be like T-shaped, right? Have a broad base for the, for, for each for the skill set and every now and then be specialized in specifics, right? The developer should have a broad understanding of basically all the technology space out there, but then have their niche. Mm-hmm. The same applies to actual coaches. You have to be T-shaped. You have to understand the breadth of how business operates, how uh, software development works, how, I don't know, marketing works, how management works. And then you have your niche that may be organization development, that may be, I don't know, uh, emerging architectures on the technical side. Right. But be aware that you have to spend a huge 
um, area of work um, and then be up for the task. Yeah. Be out there, learn it. And, and, and if you don't know something, just ask. Just so ask people. It's a very good point you make. Yeah. And I've got one last question for you, Daniel. Uh, can you share any personal lessons that you've you've gained from your experience yes. as an agile coach? I can, I can. So, um, looking back at quite some years of journey, as I said, I started out as a developer. Um, I and just somebody pointed out two weeks ago in the training that I had. Software development has become such a social process. It's not having some nerds in a basement anymore. It's about collaborating, being creative, um, working together, working with people. When I started out my career, I, I also had this impression on, oh, I'm going to be a software developer. I'm just going to write the code. No, it's not. I learned that 90% of my work has to do with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other big lesson for me is how much empathy helps to bridge the gap between people. It's about empathy and compassion. Yes. Mixing that up and, and understanding and, and having that or developing that understanding how people work, why why stuff is important to them, why they do things like they do, um, that the benefit of that and the compassion of really wanting to change something, make it better for them, uh, that expands just beyond the job. It's something that changes how you how you go through life. Right? Yeah. Um and and, and it helped me personally. In, in my work life, in my private life, um, to seek for that balance and understanding why stuff is happening, uh, learning to become more adaptive overall in life. You know, something better happens to you. Yes, take a moment to moan, mm-hmm. but it will get better. You You'll will adapt. You will learn. You will grow. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's so much life lesson in there, in this job, on just take developing a total different view of how stuff happens in the world. It, it seems like you, you live and breathe agile, not only just on a professional level, oh. but at a personal <laughs> Thank, level as thanks well. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think the journey, doing the job really changed the way I live my life. I can imagine. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's cool to be open for that, just to learn how you deal with everything. That's That's really great. Thank you for sharing that with me, Daniel. And that concludes our exhilarating ride on the Agile roller coaster. A big thank you to Daniel for sharing valuable insights and real world lessons that truly make a difference in the world of Agile coaching. It's been a pleasure, Gilfred. Um I hope our listeners found some inspiration, some ideas, some practical tips to navigate their own very personal Agile roller coasters. Absolutely. And for the listeners out there, if you've enjoyed the ride, Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review because your feedback means the world to us. And before we part ways, let's recap some key takeaways from today's episode. I think it's a lot about balancing. Um, It's about balancing the global goals of the whole organization with your own personal goals or the individual goals of people working in the organization. Um, It's also about, you know, balancing stress levels, (laughs) about the thing, sink and uh, the drainage thing I mentioned. Um, and I think you have to figure out how do you make all the trade-offs. I, I completely agree. And just to add to that as well, I think it's so important, like you highlighted, you've got so many different goals um, and then you've got 
for example, you've got goals at the global level, you've then got individual goals, you've got personal goals as well. And I think one of the tactics that you mentioned is that it's so important to put yourself in their shoes. Uh, totally. Um, let's keep in mind the most important thing here. Being an agile coach or taking that change agent role, um, that's a people's job. It's also a better system, but matrix is a people's job. So uh, <laughs> I like how you put it. Uh, yes, put yourself into the shoes of others. Yeah, definitely. And to everybody remember, agile coaching, it's not just a process, it's a mindset. It's about continuous improvement and fostering a culture that empowers teams to excel every day. Well said. And thank you once again, Daniel, for joining us. And to our listeners, if you have any questions or want to connect with Daniel or any of our Agile experts, just send an email to aqt at nagaro.com or connect with us on LinkedIn. Absolutely. We're here to address your needs, your challenges, um, and I would love to have an exchange with all of you. Sounds great. Thank you, Daniel.